0: Back in the 1990s in Southern California, they experienced a blackout. Streetlights went out, the homes were darkened, and just everything was covered in darkness. And it took a while, but after a while, people started making their way out of their homes, looking around. And then the 911 calls started. They weren't calling about the blackout. They were calling because there were these strange clouds in the sky and they were certain that there had been some kind of natural, natural disaster or perhaps an attack, but these gigantic clouds were filling the sky. What it was, was the Milky Way. They had never seen it before. They had never seen the galaxy in the sky. They call it light pollution. And it's not that things are so dark that we can't see, but things are so exposed, they so... Overexposed. They couldn't see. They couldn't see the beauty that God had placed there. They couldn't see the beauty that reflects His glory in that, 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 nat, that natural revelation that God has given us. And what gets me is it had always been there. It, it had always been there, but they never knew it and they spent their whole lives never seeing it. And yet, you know, the greatest reflection. Of God's glory isn't the Milky Way it isn't the stars it isn't the sky it isn't the beauty of the sunset or the sunrise the greatest reflection of God's glory is us we are his crowning achievement in creation we are the apex of his creation when God created mankind God said it is very good he was very pleased with what he had created he created us in his image but how many people spend their whole lives never seeing that, never knowing that it's there, never seeing themselves as God sees them. I wonder what happens when, when someone never sees that, when they never experience that. What happens when they never see themselves as, as God sees them? What, is, what happens when instead they see themselves as a failure, when they're told that they're a failure? What happens when we tell our kids that they're unwanted, What happens when we tell them that they're unloved? What happens when we tell people that they're not welcome? What happens when we spend our whole lives feeling rejected? What happens when you're told you're not good enough your whole life? We're down to the end of the book of Haggai, this tiny little prophet, only two chapters long in the Old Testament. Haggai started out with a message to the people of Judah. Uh, that they, it was time for them to rebuild the temple. They had come home from 70 years of exile. They had come home from Persia, and they'd had plenty of time to build their own homes. They'd had plenty of time to finish their homes, to panel them on the inside, but they had failed to build God a temple. They had failed to put God first. But this final message in the little book of Haggai isn't to the people of Judah, it's to their leader, that man we call Zerubbabel. We're going to look at Haggai chapter 2 verses 20 through 23 today. That's on page 792, I think, of the Bibles that you have there in the pews. Haggai 2, verses 20 through 23. I want to read the first couple of verses there. Beginning in verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Now, you may notice, from last week's sermon, that this message is on the same day. This is his second sermon given on this day. And by our calendar, it is December 18th, 520 years before the birth of Christ. But this message is not addressed to the people. He doesn't address it to that remnant that has returned from exile. He's not a, it's not a message as the previous one was to the priest, or to the high priest, Joshua. This is a personal message to Zerubbabel. And God says to Zerubbabel, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. It's the second time he said that in this this little book. He's telling Zerubbabel, I'm about to rock your world. I'm about to shake things up. I'm about to change your life. And when I am done with you, you will not be the same. You will not see yourself or your world in the same way. Now, it's not much of a stretch to say that Zerubbabel was one of the biggest losers in the Bible. And when I say Zerubbabel was a loser, I don't mean that he was bad because he wasn't bad. I don't mean that he was evil because he wasn't evil. I mean he was just a loser. He just, in his nature, he he saw himself as a loser. In his heart of hearts, he saw himself as a failure. Zerubbabel was governor of Judah, not by birthright, but because he was appointed by Darius, the king of Persia. Darius had all the real power. Darius had all the real authority. Zerubbabel was not allowed to make any decisions. He simply did what he was told. And more than that, Zerubbabel had spent his entire life knowing that God had rejected him that God had rejected his entire family. He, came, he spent his entire life knowing that he came from a family of losers. Zerubbabel's grandfather, Keniah, sometimes we call him Jeconiah, but Keniah had been king of Judah. He was the king. He had the authority. He had the power, and he wasted it. He was the last king of Judah prior to the exile, prior to the invasion Kaniah was evil. He was bad. And God treated him with, with that. He, God, God spoke to him in his unfaithfulness. God turned his back on him. Some 70 years earlier, the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Zerubbabel's grandfather. In Jeremiah chapter 22, in verse 24 of that chapter, Jeremiah, God spe- speaks through Jeremiah and says to Caniah, as I live, declares the Lord, though Caniah the son of Jehoiakim Uh, was a king of Judah, though you were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hands of those who seek your life and into the hands of those whom you are afraid, even into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. That's one of those refrigerator verses, isn't it? One of those you want to remember. What's your life verse? Well, it's not that one. But that was Zerubbabel's life verse. That was what he knew of God and how God was treating his family. You think about it. Zerubbabel had lived his whole life knowing this is my family's legacy. God has rejected us. Our nation fell, and it fell because my family failed to be faithful. It was our fault. What would that do to you? To carry that legacy of of failure your whole life. What would it do, do to you to spend your life knowing you're not good enough? Your grandfather was a failure, so you're a failure. You're not good enough. To be told you will never amount to anything. How does that impact and infect a person's thinking? And then to be given an opportunity to do good, to lead your people to build something new would you be able to do it or would you be afraid would you be oppressed by what you never saw in yourself and so God has a message for Zerubbabel God has a message in fact for every person who's ever been told that they're not good enough and through this message we see that God offers us words of acceptance Now, I bet one or two of you over the course of the last month as we've looked at the book of Haggai, I bet one or two of you have thought to yourself, say, I wonder, what kind of a name is Zerubbabel anyway? You know, maybe someday I want to have a name in my kid, Zerubbabel. You know, maybe you're thinking, maybe not. Maybe a cat. I don't know. What kind of a name is Zerubbabel? It doesn't sound like the other names that we're used to seeing in the Bible. You know, we see names like Joshua. We see names like David. We see names like... James and John and Peter later on. But what kind of a name is Zerubbabel? Well, the people of Judah came out of that exile, out of those 70 years with very different names because they were influenced by the country they were in. They were influenced by the the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And so Zerubbabel comes out of that exile with this name. And his name actually means seed of Babylon. It means born in Babylon. It means I was born in evil, hated, disgusting Babylon. The the country that all through the Bible is used as the symbol for evil. All the way to the book of Revelation, Babylon is a reflection of the evil in our world. Everything that is wrong in our world is summed up with Babylon and the governor of Judah's name is, I'm from Babylon. In other words, his name meant, you're not from around here, are you? You don't belong here. God had told Zerubbabel's grandfather, God had said to Zerubbabel's grandfather, if you were a signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you off. Now, <clears throat> I think we understand signet rings to a degree and what signet rings are. Signet rings symbolize belonging. It would have your family crest. It would have that which symbolized your family. And and it was a, a symbol of belonging that you're part of the family, that you belong to me. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son returns to his father. His father greets him. His father embraces him. And what does the father say? He says, put a robe on my son because you know, he's been living with pigs and he smells really bad, so put a robe on his son, on my son, put sandals on his feet, and he says, and put a ring on his finger, because this son of mine was lost and is now found. This son of mine was dead, and he is alive again. And it was the father's way of saying, this is my son. You are welcome back. You're, you're not just going to come back as, as one of my servants, but you belong to me. God's message to Zerubbabel's grandfather was, I'm going to rip, you were a signet ring, I would rip you off my finger. I would not want anything to do with you. I don't want you to be any part of me. But what's his message to Zerubbabel? Look on in in Haggai chapter 2, verses 21 and following says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You hear that? I'll make you... Like a signet ring. Your past is not you. Other people's failures, those don't define you. God doesn't judge you by your mistakes, instead, He offers you His amazing grace. Whereas earlier in this book, God was distant, Zerubbabel is always referred to as Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel governor of Judah. You know, we we just kind of have this reference to who he is and who he belongs to. In verse 23, suddenly he's referred to as Zerubbabel, my servant. God says, "This this is my servant. And don't hear that as something impersonal. He's saying, you belong to me. You are mine. You are my servant. And you realize that my servant was Isaiah's favorite term for the Messiah. Every time Isaiah refers to Jesus, the Messiah, he refers to him with those words, my servant. More often than not, that's the term that he uses. And he closes his message with those words, I have chosen you. Those are the words he spoke to Abraham. I have chosen you out of all the nations. I've chosen this family. Those are the words he spoke to Jacob who would become Israel. I have chosen you. Those are the words He spoke to Moses. Those are the words He spoke to David. Those are the words He spoke of Jesus and through Jesus. I have chosen you. People need to hear that. They need to hear that from us. They need to hear that God has chosen them. We've got people in our community. We've got people in our lives who all their lives they've been told what they're not. All their lives they've been told that they're not good enough. Like those people in Los Angeles, they've never seen the beauty that God created them with. They've never seen the truth of who they are. And they don't need the church. They don't need us telling them what they're not. They definitely don't need to hear that from Christians. They don't need us telling them they're, uh, they're not welcome. They need us to tell them they are welcome, that they are valued, that they are loved, that they are forgiven. They need to know that they are important to God and they're important to us. They need to know that they are chosen. And you need to know that too. You need to know what God was showing Zerubbabel. God wants the pleasure of calling you His own. That's what God wants. He wants the pleasure of calling you His own. I feel like these four chapters these or four messages from, from uh, Haggai have culminated in this one, in, the, in just these last few verses at the end. At the heart of, the, of this little book, it's not about rebuilding the temple. It's not about those things that they've done. Uh, the heart of it is God rebuilding our hearts. God rebuilding the heart of Zerubbabel. His reinstatement of Zerubbabel and those words of affirmation, I have chosen you. It is a message to us that no matter what we've done, no matter what others have said about us, God wants to call us His own. Now this isn't the last time. This isn't the only time that the name Zerubbabel appears in the Bible. It's not the first time, and it's certainly not the last time. The name Zerubbabel appears also in the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospels of Luke. Zerubbabel is included in the genealogy of Jesus. Zerubbabel is Jesus's great, 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 great grandfather. That's the shaking of the heavens and the earth that God was talking about in that message. I'm going to shake the heavens and earth. Things are going to change, and you are going to be a part of that change. He is connected by blood to the Messiah. He is co- connected by blood to Jesus. And that's what continues to shake our lives Today, because you and I are also connected to Jesus. You and I are connected by His blood as well. I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Through the blood of Jesus, those words are spoken to you. God has chosen you. There are other people in your life who are going to recognize you by your mistakes there are other people in your life who are going to recognize you by your parents' mistakes. Maybe even your grandparents' mistakes. Other people are going to know you by your failures. God knows you by the words of His Son. It is finished. I have paid the price for this person. Other people know you by your mistakes. God knows you by His Son. Other people see your past. God sees your eternity He created you and He bought you with His own blood. He has chosen you. One of the, Fred Craddock, one of the best preachers you've never heard of. (laughs) Fred Craddock was an amazing preacher. He died just a few months ago. He died back in March. He was an amazing preacher. He was an incredible teacher of preachers. I learned so much from his books and from listening to him. He was an incredible storyteller. A man could tell stories and just hold you right there. One of his best stories involves him and his wife. He Early on in their ministry, they were taking some time off, and he needed to get away for a little while, so they went to Gatlinburg. And they, they got down there and rented a cabin in Gatlinburg, and they were going to just be away from everybody and everything for a few days. First night they were there, they went to this little restaurant, a little mom-and-pop place. He said it wasn't very fancy. Just plain tablecloths, plain chairs, but it was reported to have the best food around. So they walk into this restaurant, they sit down, and as they're sitting there waiting, this old man walks in wearing coveralls, looking every bit the part of the, well, I'd say mountaineer, but I really mean hillbilly. I mean, that's what he looked like. And this old man proceeded to make his way around the restaurant and greet each and every guest, and Craddock admits to his shame. He thought, great. We came here to get away from people, and this guy's gonna come bother us. Sure enough, he made his way to the Craddock's table, stuck his hand out, and said, Where are you from? Fred Craddock said, Atlanta. He says, Yeah, what are you doing, Atlanta? And he thought, You know, maybe if I confuse him, he'll leave us alone. So he said, I'm a professor of homiletics. Guy's never gonna understand that. He said, Oh, you teach preachers how to preach thought, how do you know what a professor of homiletics is? He said, yeah, it's, that's what I do. The man pulled up a chair, sat down, and said, i got a preacher story to tell you. Oh, great. Because we've all heard all the preacher stories. He said, I was born on this mountain. Grew up here. My mother never married. And as a child, that was a horrible stigma to be born with. People used to make fun of me in school. The kids used to yell out to me and they'd say, Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? I'd go to the store and adults would say, Who's your daddy? So that I got to where I hated being around people. I didn't want anything to do with anyone. All I wanted to do was just stay home. But my, my grandma wouldn't let me. Grandma insisted that we had to go to church. And so every Sunday we would go to church. And every Sunday we would get there just as church started. And then we would leave as soon as it was over. So I didn't have to face anyone. I didn't have to talk to anybody that one Sunday we were a little slow getting out of church. And there was this big, meaty hand on my shoulder. And I looked up, and there was the preacher. Big guy. Big, booming voice. And this preacher asked me the question that I had dreaded for all 14 years of my existence. The preacher said, Boy, who's your daddy? And the whole church everybody knew. Suddenly, the preacher realized he must have done something wrong, and he spun me around and held me by both shoulders, and he said, I see the resemblance now. You're a child of God. You go claim your inheritance. Craddock was moved. He felt a lump in his throat and shivers up his spine. The man got up and walked out. When his waitress came over, Craddock said, Who's, who was that man? She said, that guy? Everybody knows him. That was Ben Hooper. And Craddock himself remembered his grandfather telling him the story of the illegitimate boy born in the mountains of Tennessee who grew up to be a lawyer, grew up to be an attorney, and who the people of Tennessee later elected as their governor for two terms. And that man's name was Ben Hooper how many Ben Hoopers do we know how many Ben Hoopers are part of our community how many of Ben Hoopers might be in here today people who have been told their whole life what they're not what they don't belong to and what they're not a part of how many Ben Hoopers are there that that are part of our community who have no idea of the beauty of that God has created them with, who've never seen it, who've never been told all they've ever heard is that they're not good enough and that they don't belong. They've never been told of the God who has chosen them, of the inheritance that is theirs, and they lived in bondage to something that they're not, to someone that they're not. The message of Haggai isn't just about putting God first. The message of Haggai is of a God that puts us first. The God who shook heaven and earth to come down, to know us, to love us, to show us that He has chosen us, that He calls us His own. The God who's poured out His amazing grace and has broken the chains that have held you down and held you.